0: So I'm going to open up with a question today. Um, and the question is, is authority a good thing or a bad thing? You can call it out if you have a suggestion or an idea. Good? Who's authority? Who's authority? That's, that's really the right, that's the right question. Um, so I have another question. This is going to seem less relevant, but it's kind of relevant. Um, does anyone know what orcs are in the Lord of the Rings? And I mean, like, I mean, like, deep what they actually are. No? So orcs are elves. Orcs are elves. If you're deep into Lord of the Rings nerdiness, which I was for many years, um, orcs are elves. And the reason that Tolkien wrote that into the story was that basically they are good things that have been twisted. Because what Tolkien writes, and there's a, there's a quote that he writes, he says that the shadow that bred them can only mock, it cannot make, not real new things of its own. And then it talks about how it only twisted and ruined the orcs from already living creatures because Satan and evil can't actually make something of its own, can't actually make something new. And Tolkien is obviously a, I mean, I hope you know this, that he's a very Christian thinker and he weaves all these kind of themes uh, throughout his books. And so, the, the, the connection there is that like all things in God's world, um, authority is a good thing when it's used rightly, uh, and it's a bad thing when it's twisted and perverted and used for wickedness, all right? So, the it was, the, it was the, right, the right counter question, who's authority? Because uh, in our culture, I think we tend to, we, I don't think this, I know this, we tend to think of freedom as the ultimate value, as if it's a good in and of itself, Uh, and authority as something that's inherently kind of suspect and open to challenge and critique. Uh, So even the idea of kingship, which is what we're going to be talking about today, is kind of something that our country was founded against. Um, But freedom isn't really good in and of itself, right? I think we all kind of know this. I mean, if we let our children have freedom in their diet, then it would just be like coffee, and i or not coffee, uh, candy. (laughs) coffee, maybe, I, maybe I'm tired, I don't know, <laughs> candy and ice cream all day, and it, it would sound amazing until like an hour later when you have a serious, you know, stomach ache, and then they would do it all again the next day, and then two years later, they would be like hospital and malnutrition and no teeth and, and all those sorts of fun things, um, because a freedom of a certain kind breeds death and slavery. In John 8, Jesus says, whoever makes a practice of sin is a slave to sin. Uh, some places that's more visible, like with the freedom you know, to do drugs, then you immediately become a slave. In other things, it's a little more subtle, but it's there anyway. Um, and in the same way, when it comes to these issues of freedom and authority, God's kingdom is not a democracy. Uh, authority is problematic in, in, in many ways, but the answer to bad authority is God's authority. The answer to bad authority is good uh, authority. And because authority is a good thing, uh, it's ultimately and perfectly good that this world that we see around us will one day be ruled uh, by King Jesus. Um, In one of the Christmas songs that we sing, we sing about how Jesus was born a child and yet a king. And in the past weeks, we've been talking about how God was with us in Jesus, Emmanuel, we sing, and how God is for us as a savior. But all of that is only really good news if God is also over us. We need a God with teeth. Um, You know, if if you're fighting, if kids are fighting with their siblings, maybe I'll address this to the kids. If you're fighting with your siblings, and let's say there's a dispute about like whose turn it is to play on the Xbox, hypothetical situation, would you rather have your sibling on your side or your parents on your side? Right, like imagine if your parents are like, no, it's not your turn, but your sibling's like, I think it's totally your turn, right? Which one is better? Well, it it doesn't really help to have somebody who's for us if they don't have any authority to make things right, right? It's not enough to have Jesus as our cheerleader. We have to have a Jesus with authority, with power, with strength. And so we're going to talk today about what it means that Jesus is our king and also the king. Because he's not just our king; it's not like his kingdom ends when you walk out the back door. And so, to that end, I think we're gonna it will help to set us in uh, context of the Bible, and kind of look through uh, redemptive history in the Old Testament and see how God's purposes for kingship um, unfold in Jesus. So, so I think we'll start with that. Um, who's the first king in the Bible? Does anyone have a guess? Yeah, Judah, David? David. It's a, it's a, it's a good guess, Amelia. Saul. Okay. Now let's let's think more meta. Yeah. God, that that you're even you 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 beat me to it. I was going to say Adam, but you yeah. You, God is the first king. Adam's mission was to have dominion, right? So so God created Adam in the garden and gave him the mission to rule, right? From the very 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 beginning. To have dominion and subdue the earth, to rule over the entire world. And so, even even in the idea of the second Adam, we see the echoes of Jesus fulfilling the kingship mandate of the first Adam. Uh, So, so kingship is something that is part of God's good world, proper authority. Uh, And Adam should have exercised that proper dominion over the animals, and instead, he actually ended up listening to one of the animals uh, and plunging the world into sin. And there are echoes of the kingship idea uh, all throughout the following stories, including the idea of um, Abraham possessing the land, presumably as kind of like a ruler. Uh, and Abraham, kind of there's these stories where Abraham is negotiating with other kings and going out and say, you know, going to war against other kings. So there's echoes of the kingship idea. But we only really get the explicit kind of spelling it out again. In Genesis 49, 8 to 10, and I have a slide of that, I think. Um, this is after the story of Joseph, and the blessing, it's the blessings of Jacob on his 12 sons. Uh, and they really kind of set the stage for Israel's history, because up, up until that point, we're kind of doing Israel's history with the family, right? It's just individual kids. But then at the end of Genesis and the transition to Exodus, that's where we kind of really move into the story of the people of Israel. And, and there are these promises that are being given to each one of the individual children. So let me read this out. We read 49, 8 to 10. Judah, your brothers shall praise you, and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. And he stooped down and he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? And here's the blessing. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Judah is going to be literally the king of the world, or someone from Judah is going to be the king of the entire world. It's the obedience of the nations. All the other countries is going to be to somebody from this tribe. And so God isn't done with the idea of a a ruler or a representative king. The ruler's staff belongs to Judah. But let's let's pause here for a second. Uh, why Judah? Is Judah the, is, is Judah the oldest in the family? Now, who's the oldest? Trivia question. The oldest son of Jacob. He's a very he's he, I get I get that nobody knows because he's not really that important long term, which is kind of the interesting thing. Yes, yes, Reuben, good. Yeah, it's Reuben. So Reuben is actually the oldest kid. And what we see with Judah is actually a very interesting thing. And I'm going to use a big word here and then I'm going to explain it. So, so you know, stay with me. Um, what we see here is the reversal of the law of primogeniture. So the law of primogeniture is in the in Old Testament peoples and everybody at the time is the firstborn. Primo, number one, Geniture to be generated, is, it, it has that idea. So the firstborn. <clears throat> and the, the law of primogeniture, as it's called, is that the firstborn gets everything, and he becomes the next king. The oldest, you know, we see this in, in like the, the modern royal family in England, right? You have, you have people who get really into like the, the different lists, and well, if this guy dies in a car accident, and this guy gets assassinated the next day, then this person becomes king. That's primogeniture. It's different degrees of relation, and it's all through a series of relationships and rules. And what we see in the Old Testament is that the law of the firstborn, let's call it that, um, is constantly reversed, constantly. Isaac is the younger brother of Ishmael, right? Jacob is the younger brother of Esau. You remember the story of, of Isaac and Ishmael, he, the, the, older, the older brother, and, uh, and then there's the promised child. So there's the one who's the oldest, but then there's the one that God has chosen. Uh, same exact thing with Jacob and Esau, and Judah and Reuben. And famously, David and Solomon both had older brothers that were presumably going to be the king. right? In 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel goes to anoint David, and we're going to get to David later, um, he says, oh, look at, look at this oldest Look at this oldest son. This is the one. Uh, same thing with uh, with Solomon. He actually has to fend off a very fast and early challenge to his throne from his older brother, but he's the chosen one. So why, why, why does God pick the one who isn't the oldest? Well, it's to show that God is in control. It's to show that God is the one who decides, and God is the one who is working salvation. It isn't according to just the normal procedures, just the oldest kid, the strongest kid. It isn't the person who looks more qualified. I mean, Esau literally had more hair on his chest than his brother, right? We are told this. Esau was the stronger warrior. He was the, he was the presumptive guy. But God is in control of the promised line. And in Romans 9, we hear that it's exactly for this reason, that God shows that it's his choice and not human effort and not human strength that is actually specifically tied to that choice of Jacob over Esau. And so we see that it's not by human power that God builds his kingdom. He doesn't look for impressive people and pass over the unimpressive. That's what we do. But God's power is shown to be perfect in weakness. It's what he says in, in 2 Corinthians 12 where, where Paul talks about how he's so physically weak and he has whatever kind of, you know, problem that he describes as this thorn in his flesh. And God says, this is perfect for me, right? This is, my grace is enough for you. I'm, I, you don't need to be healed. You don't even need to be this strong, super preacher specimen. My power is made perfect in weakness. And then there's a second twin kind of motif taking you back to English class, motif, something that is kind of woven through the story, um, that shows up again and again, and God shows his control over the line of the king in that all of the patriarch's wives are barren. Have you ever noticed this? Sarah is barren. She is ancient, has no children. It's not really a normal thing. It's not really something that you could kind of choose at the time without getting like too detailed there. Um, If you don't have kids by the time you're 80, there's something physically wrong. Um, Same exact thing with Rebecca. We read that Rebecca was barren. Uh, Same exact thing with Rachel. We hear that Rachel was barren. And then there's a few others. There's Hannah. And then there's the wife of Manoah, who's the mother of Samson. And in every case, so it's a woman who's unable to have children, who would at the time be considered really lowly and despised. And it's not necessarily that she would be considered like, not, it's not necessarily that she would be despised. It's just, it is, it's embarrassing in the sense that at the time, it's one of your only ways to contribute to your family. There are no office jobs at the time for women, right? So if you're dealing with the situation of a farm, you're either a muscular guy or you're making muscular guys, right? Who can work on the farm, And it's very difficult in that sort of culture, it's considered a shame to be the person who who gets married, who's a wife, and doesn't produce any children. And so these are people who would have been despised. It's a shame. And in, in all those stories, they always when they when they get a child, they say something along the lines of the Lord has taken away my reproach. The Lord has taken away my shame. And so God shows that He exalts the lowly, those who would traditionally be looked down on in society younger brothers, childless women those are exactly the people that God uses to bring His king from humble and unexpected surroundings. And by the way, what I didn't mention is every single one of these women either produces a great savior in Israel, like Samson, like uh, Joseph, right because. Uh, Rachel, uh, Rachel is not the mother of Judah, but she is the mother of Joseph, who saves all the people. Um, or it's the next major key figure in that line of promise that is brought forth from this barren woman to show that God is completely in control. It's not just, just to recap, it's not just normal people having kids and the oldest boy is the next person. God chooses who the next person is gonna be, and he has to directly intervene in order to even bring life to show that he's going to bring his representative from unlikely, humble places. So back to Genesis 49. The scepter will not depart from Judah. A king will come from Judah. Uh, And so we see the expectation for a king continue through Exodus. Um, In Deuteronomy 17, Moses lays out the law for the future king and says when you come into the land, you can set a king over you. And so there's still the expectation of the coming king. And all of that brings us to kind of the main story for today, long introduction, of 1 Samuel. Um, and which, 1 Samuel, which is about the, the coming of the king. And so today we're going to be talking about 1 Samuel and Hannah's story. So it all kind of starts in a small town um, during the days, and you can open your Bible if you want and follow along. This is 1 Samuel 1, and I'll kind of walk us through it. So it all starts in a small town in Israel during the days of the judges, and the judges at the time were functioning like sort of quasi-kings or rulers over Israel, and then in verse 1 we read, there's a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country, and I'm not going to read all the names, his name was Elkanah, an Ephrathite, and he had two wives, not recommended, by the way, um... The name of the one was, and, and you can see why it's not recommended in the story, actually. So that's actually, I'm going to do a little aside here. A lot of the times, we we kind of don't really know how to read stories, and we 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 read about people having multiple wives, and we think the Bible is saying that's a good thing, until you kind of look a little bit deeper at the stories and realize that everyone who has multiple wives in the entire Old Testament has problems, <laughs> right? Where where there's like you know, the, the, either either Hannah and her rival, or in the in the other stories. Um, I'm blanking on the name, Rebecca and, uh, what's her name? Uh, Obviously Rachel and Leah, but then Rebecca has a a servant, I don't remember Rebecca's servant, but there's always a a problem, there's always tension there. Um, So anyway, he had two wives, the name of the one was Hannah and the other was Penina, and Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. I'm going to skip down to verse 6 here. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by by year. And it talks about how they went up to the house regularly of the Lord. And as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And so we read about how Hannah goes into the temple. uh, And she's praying and she's weeping before the Lord. And we read in verses 19 through 20 that the Lord remembered Hannah. And in due time, Hannah conceived, and she bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And the name Samuel means God hears, or God answers. And Hannah dedicates him to the Lord, saying, for this child I prayed. And the Lord granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. So we see the, the barren woman kind of idea or motif pop up again uh, about how God, and well, I'm not going to do the, inter- I'll, I'll let Hannah do the interpretation. So in chapter 2, which is our main text, verses 1 through 10, uh, Hannah prays, and it's Hannah's song. And, uh, yep, I have it. And you can follow along here, or I'll, I'll read it out. Hannah prays after this and says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord and there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. So notice, you'll notice here the theme of the reversal of the humble and the proud. So follow it along. The Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings to shale and raises up. He makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off. For not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord will be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So we see these themes reappearing. that God is the one who acts. Not by human might shall man prevail. Talk not so very proudly. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength the Lord brings, uh, kills and brings to life. So you might say, okay, that's a cool story. About Hannah. But what is this, what's the larger significance? We've been talking about kingship, we've been talking about the Lord bringing his savior from this line, uh, and the Lord doing these kind of reversals, and bringing his king from a humble estate. Well, look at verse 10. Verse 10's very interesting. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, why is Hannah singing about the Lord giving strength to his king? What does this have to do with kingship? She just had a baby. Samuel doesn't even become king. Why is she singing about kingship? Well, there's there's actually a literary device here that I want to point out. I don't do this often, so it's called an inclusio, and an inclusio is when you start with you start and end a song or poem with the same line and sort of bracket it all. So like in Genesis 39 or or a story, it can be that as well. Like in Genesis 39, it starts with The Lord was with Joseph and he was successful. And the last verse of Genesis 39, So the Lord was with him and made him successful. Can anyone guess what Genesis 39 is about? It's about the Lord being with Joseph and making him successful. (laughs) So the story kind of opens on one note, fills in the detail, and then closes on the same note. Well, Hannah's song opens with, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. And it closes with, the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I think I have, a, uh, yeah, I have the connection there. So Hannah is connecting what happened with her with what is going to happen to the Lord's king. The same way that the Lord raised up her horn, this, this, I, this it's a metaphor for, for lifted up, lift her up from a humble estate, so also will the Lord give strength to his king And exalt the horn of his anointed. So, how does this play out in 1 Samuel? Well, the people demand a king. You know the story? Maybe. The people want a king like the nations. That's what they say. Give us a king like all the others around us. And this explains why God reacts so negatively. Like, wasn't Israel supposed to have a king? Right? We read in Deuteronomy 17 that there's supposed to be a king. Why is this such a bad thing? Has anyone ever wondered that when you're reading the Bible? It's like, king is is good. Why is is God so upset? But it wasn't supposed to be a king like the nations. It It was supposed to be God's chosen king. It was supposed to be part of God's redeeming plan to save the world. His anointed representative, the next person in the line. That's not something you can just demand. It's not just, all right, it's time. Give us the next one, right? And so God tells Samuel, they're rejecting me from being king because if you reject God as the king maker you are rejecting him as the ultimate king but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel for Samuel 8 19 and they said no but there shall be a king over us so that we may be like all the nations which is not really something Israel should be saying and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles do you remember who used to go out before Israel and fight their battles yeah. So, and by the way, one feature of kind of Hebrew storytelling is that it's kind of very neat to know with physical descriptions. A modern novel can kind of go on for pages talking about the character's hair and whatever he looks like and stuff like that. But when, when the Bible tells you uh, physical characteristics, it's, it's usually important. When the Bible tells you that Ehud is left-handed, it's because he's about to hide a sword in his left hand and kill somebody, Right? When the Bible tells you that Esau was hairy and Jacob was smooth, that's not just kind of comic relief. It's because that actually plays a role in the story later when Jacob has to kind of disguise himself and like tie on some furs and things like that. You know, when the Bible tells you that Absalom had like really long hair and he used to go up and he would like have this long hair and he would weigh it. Well, what happens a chapter later? It gets stuck in a bush while during the battle and he gets killed, right? So whenever character descriptions come up, they matter. So who's Saul? What does Saul look like? He's a full head taller than everyone else. He is, he is literally Israel's Goliath. He's huge. He's, I mean, a head taller, that's, that's big. He's the oldest in his family. He's physically impressive. He is a king like the nations. But like Hannah's song told us, not by might shall man prevail. So there's actually a kind, of, kind of a bitter irony going on in the David and Goliath story when David goes out to fight Goliath, it should be Saul. That's, the, that's really the idea that you're supposed to have. Wait a second. Isn't Saul taller than literally everyone else? And everyone's scared of this tall guy, right? I mean, Saul gave David his armor, and it's so big that David is drowning in it. And he says that, it, the text literally says that David tried in vain to walk, literally couldn't walk in Saul's armor because Saul's armor is huge, because Saul is huge. So I think we know where this is going. The story that is set by Hannah's song, which determines the whole course of First Samuel, leads to David, the young shepherd boy. The youngest son, uh, the physically unimpressive little boy, is God's chosen king. And God protects him, and he exalts him, and David becomes Israel's greatest king. And the promise is given to David that his throne will be Forever. His dynasty will be eternal. So one of his children, somebody from his family, is going to be that eternal, forever king that was promised. Do you remember what tribe David was from? He's from Judah. So the careful biblical reader kind of knew that Saul wasn't the final character because he's from the wrong tribe. Saul's from Benjamin, so he wasn't going to be the guy either way. So what does all this have to do with Christmas? Christmas. We've talked about orcs, uh, Ehud's assassination, Goliath, uh, and we haven't talked about Christmas yet. Well, it's just like we sing in a little town of Bethlehem, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in Jesus. Like Paul also says, that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. About a thousand years after David, just like God remembered Hannah, Luke tells us that God remembered his people. And remember we talked about the barren woman, that idea that God shows his absolute control over bringing about this king by going into places where, into family situations, where it's extremely unlikely that a child would be born, because the woman can't have a child, and so God supernaturally brings in a child to show that he's the one who's in control. Well, the ultimate barren woman is a virgin. The ultimate barren woman is Mary. So just like Sarah and Rachel and Rebecca and Hannah and Samson's mother were barren but gave birth to saviors of Israel, God appears to Mary. And the king of kings is born and laid in a feeding trough in the humblest position. And Luke records for us that Mary sings a song just like Hannah sings a song. So tell me if this sounds familiar, if you still have First Samuel 2 in your head. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. <clears throat> for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Does that sound familiar? He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This isn't just coincidence. Mary's song is modeled on Hannah's song. Picks up almost all of the key themes and repeats them in slightly different words. Which further brings this kind of connection between the barren woman idea and Mary. And so when we read Hannah's song and Mary's song side by side, we see that the Lord reverses our expectations. The Messiah isn't born into a royal kingly house. He's born into a humble family. So Jesus wasn't born as a political leader, but God will exalt his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed, not by human effort, not by human might shall man prevail. And yet Jesus is the promised king, the son of David, God's chosen king. Just like Saul tried to kill David and failed, Herod, the king at the time, tries to kill Jesus and fails. But there's still a problem here. Remember that we talked in the beginning about how God being for us is not good news unless he has power. God being for us is, I mean, it's nice that Jesus is the king, but what does that have to do with us now? How does that answer the problem that we talked about? Well, Jesus came humbly in a manger, humbling himself to the point of dying on the cross, But that's not how he's coming back. Jesus is not coming back humbly. When Jesus comes back, he's not going to be an infant. He's going to be a king. So let's read about Jesus' second coming and see if this strikes us a little bit differently. This is from Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we don't always like to hear those kind of descriptions, but that is good news. That is good news. Jesus is the King of Kings. And when he comes back, every knee will bow. Even the knees of those who rejected him, the knees of those who persecuted his church, the knees of the most stubborn atheist will bow when Jesus comes back in glory. And because he is king, he will make all things right. Like Isaiah tells us, he will sit on the throne of David and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So how do we live in light of Jesus' kingship? First of all, we obey him because he's our king. We build his kingdom. Because Jesus is our king and our lord and our ruler, we follow him, knowing that he is coming to make all things right. Second, we entrust ourselves to him instead of taking revenge. See, part of the reason that it's good news that Jesus is coming back in glory and power is that we don't have to make sure everything is right now. That's Jesus' job. Jesus is going to make sure that absolutely everything is right. So I think it's in 1 Peter, I didn't write down the passage, Um, it talks about how Jesus, when he was reviled, did not answer back but entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And set us an example in that same way. That when, when something happens to us, when we're slighted, when we feel like something's unfair, as Christians we have a supernatural ability to bear that, at least we should, knowing that Jesus is coming back one day. And he's going to make absolutely everything right. And third, we live in hope because he will rule over all creation one day. Just like Adam should have subdued the whole earth, subdued the whole creation, and all creation was thrown into curse when he failed, Jesus comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Every sickness, every disease, every hurricane, every cancer cell will be destroyed when King Jesus comes to make all things right. That's, that's the message of Jesus' kingship. So on this fourth of Advent, the last Advent where we position ourselves and posture our hearts in such a way that we expect the coming of Christ. We remember his first coming next week and we right now, specifically on this Sunday, expect and ask for and look for his second coming to make all things right because his first coming deals with sin, yes. That's not the only need we have. We need a God who makes all things right. We need a God who judges. We need a God whose robe is dipped in blood and who has a name on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. So as Jesus tells tells us at the end of Revelation, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon and like John replies in the very last words of our Bible. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I'll pray. we will close. Lord Jesus, give us hope to think about your coming. Give us the perspective to orient our hearts toward the truth that you are our king. Lord, even when we don't see it, even when it seems like the world is in chaos, even when it seems like you are not on your throne, we know that you are on your throne. And you are coming back to make all things right. So even as we are here in this time of Christmas, where we look back at your first coming to save us from our sins, and we trust you for our salvation, we look to your second coming. We look to you as our king who will wipe away every single tear from our eyes. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.